0: Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course, having an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Gav Thompson is a marketer with almost 25 years experience. Not one to settle on a particular path, his career to date has been anything but linear. Indeed, it is the very epitome of a zigzag career. Starting at AMV in the middle 90s, he moved around the world, working at the world's biggest agencies, both as a suit and as a planner. After moving client-side with O2, he quickly climbed the corporate ladder at the fledgling mobile brand to European Director of Innovation. Before disrupting himself and the sector, he worked in by founding GIFGAF and launching it with his employer. Not one to rest on his laurels, he has tested himself several times since, perhaps most notably taking on the CMO job at Paddy Power at the zenith of criticism over its controversial, some might say distasteful, ad campaigns. Gav, I think it's fair to say that you've had a more varied
1: career than most. Was that deliberate? It it wasn't really, uh, Russell. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. When I was at school, I wanted to be an actor. I definitely wanted to go to, to Cambridge and be part of Footlights. That was my only real ambition. I couldn't get there through the normal means i did biology, physics chemistry a level no one was that interested in that so i had to kind of get in through the back door and, and get on to an education and drama degree but i did get to be the director of footlights I had a great time there and then my initial plan was to be both an actor and a primary school teacher to finance my acting career which after a few months i realized i was neither good at acting nor could i ever be a very good teacher and that was when i stumbled into advertising i, I bumped into a guy randomly one day who said, Gav, I think I know you quite well. Creativity in commerce is what makes you tick. You should get a job in advertising. I'd never heard of advertising, didn't know what it was. He kindly bought me a copy of a Campaign magazine. He said, Write to these 10 agencies, apply for a grad recruitment job, and I managed to get on four, four offers of four jobs, and then found myself very fortunately at Albert Vickers in 94, which was the best agency in town. And, and very quickly they gave me the best account in town, which was Volvo which given I was an absolute car nut, meant that I could make a real impact really quickly. So so totally by luck, from science A-levels to an education degree, with a failed acting career behind me, I found myself with a job at AMV and, and loved it. was very, very lucky. So you weren't sat at home, dreaming about a career in advertising
0: and marketing when you were younger.
1: I, I genuinely didn't know what it was. When, the, when this guy said you should get a job in advertising, I didn't even know what the agencies existed. I liked ads. But I, I, was. it was a very self-selecting process. I remember um, in my graduate interview for for AMV, pitching to Scylla and Farah a femidom. Femidoms just come out. My mum was a doctor. She'd been given a load of femidoms. I'd nicked them out of her doctor's bag. And I was sort of sitting there presenting to these fantastic female bosses about how to insert a femidom. And at that... <laughs> I remember thinking, if they give me a job on the back of this, there's something good going on here. They clearly like my way of seeing the world. Uh, and I guess that, you know, that sort of passion and creativity and backing yourself, they, they liked the look of that. In those days, you know, they had, you know, two and a half thousand applications for three jobs. So it was quite, I realised by the time they chose me that this was an area that I could hopefully make an impact in.
0: And I majored at the beginning in my intro, the fact that you've had this very career, move sideways, move diagonally, etc. Was that... Again, is that a deliberate decision? Do you get restless or do you just set yourself a primary
1: objective at the beginning? I think it's a bit of both, Russell. I, I'm a naturally restless soul. I do, do have a relatively busy brain. I like to get on to the next challenge. And, you know, I did I did six years at AMV. I did seven years at O2 and Telefonica. So w- when things are right and I'm in harmony with, with the culture and what I'm doing and I am making an impact and I am... You know, making a difference. I'm. I can be very happy and and sort of relatively stationary, if I feel I'm not making a difference or I'm not making an impact or that the culture is all isn't right. I'm very happy to just kind of back myself, take a risk, uh, and do different things. I think that makes me a better marketeer. It certainly makes more interesting life. It makes my wife's job a bit of a roller coaster. But I don't regret anything. I've made some, a few false starts. You know, to go from agencies to, to a telco to Paddy Power, to, to some startups. I think I, I think it makes me better at my job, but, but it does make for a slightly, as you say, zigzaggy CV. And we've talked
0: a lot already about your time in agencies uh, across the world in various different companies. Did it stand you in good stamp before you move client side, did you get a good view and a good
1: grounding? Yeah, I did. I was taught lots of great things at agencies, and again, particularly at AMV. You know, I was taught to be passionate, to be passionate about your customers, passionate about creativity, to be passionate about brands, and the linking of all those three things. That is what I learned, really. In those days, you know, in the mid-90s, data didn't really exist as a, as a science in the way it does now in marketing data. The, the relationship between creativity and data has always... I kind of learned that quite early on in my career... Yeah, I remember when I was the account manager on Volvo, I discovered through my own data research that, that a Volvo actually could accelerate in the mid-range faster than the Ferrari. I wrote a spreadsheet out, it was pre-excel by hand. It took me a week, all the different data points. I went in to, to show it to the creative director. I think, you know, it was a Friday afternoon. I think he'd had quite a refreshing lunch. He was there with his feet on the desk, tossing a pen up in the air, and I ran in as the sort of graduate went, I've got this great idea for an ad. It's amazing. Volvos can out- accelerate Ferraris. Gave him my handwritten spreadsheet He looked at it for about a minute and then ripped it up slowly, threw it in my face, stood up and then called me a word that sounded a bit like punt and then just went punt, punt to my face. I walked out of the office. He followed me down the corridor, calling me a a, a punt. We got to the lift, came in the lift with me. We went down the lift to my floor and then he followed me out. They're continuing to call me this fantastic word. And I learned that day that the relationship between creative and data is always is always going to be a, a fragile, interesting relationship. And actually, it turns out he actually ended up writing an ad using that data that got in the DNA annual. So it was it was an interesting lesson to learn. So yes, the relationship between creative and data, very important. And over time, in 2018, I think I think data is serious, is where the interest is and where most of the energy is. And I I got lots to learn about data but i think creativity still has an important role to play and certainly as a marketeer i've come from that world of the power of an idea how you get into people's brains with something that's engaging and and, and emotive and and yeah i learned that at that point and i haven't forgotten that ever since
0: you say on your linkedin that you're a customer-centric marketer which is one of those things that people say however it seems to me that you've perhaps lived it a little more than most if you can give me some examples where you've employed customer centricity in your career
1: yeah, I think when I went from count director to a planner, the only way you could do that was to get to know the customer. I, you know, I'm not I wasn't a trained planner, but I was good at asking questions, good at observing customers. So my first planning job was in the 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 States on Pepsi, and I you know, did over a hundred groups just asking customers why they drank Pepsi, dark Pepsi. I then wrote a brief, I gave it to the creative director. And he put a red line through it and just put, write something funny enough to go in the Super Bowl. So that was an interesting lesson in, in customer centricity. But on pictures we like with Guinness, I just went and sat in bars and watched people drink Guinness, which, and sometimes, you know, off went up to them and said, look, if I buy you a round, well, can you ask me some questions about Guinness? So it was easy just to observe that people didn't really want to wait for a pint of Guinness to be poured on a Saturday evening. Sunday afternoon, fine. You know, lunchtime beer, fine. But in the thick of a Friday evening scrum to get to the bar that wait for a pint of Guinness, you could just see, you could mentally see them going, I'll get a Stella, I just don't want to wait for Guinness. And just observing that meant that I could go back to Tom and Walt, the creators, and go, look, there's something in this. And they then made the creative leap of, let's turn that weight, that negativity, into a positive thing about anticipation, which led to the surf rag, which was fantastic. And so that, when I joined O2, I think the reason I got the job at O2 was Kath Kears, who was then the CMO, from the very first interview, just had this connection of, customer, 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 whatever the answer to the question is, start with the customer. And she, at the time, you know, spent a lot of time in the call centres and just encouraged me to do the same. I'd go up to the call centres in Bury and Glasgow, in Liverpool, and just hang out on the phones talking to customers. I'd go and hang out in, in shops. It's what I do now. It's what I did recently at Yopa, was just go and hang out with the agents out on the road talking to customers. And it gives you so much insights your business gives you something that most people around the boardroom table or even in the marketing team just don't have they've got lots of data they've got lots of business problems and opportunities but do they really know what a customer feels what they love about your brand what they hate what they love about your competitor's brand what you could do better or worse and that really was how i got to gift Gaff. i was i'd been at o2 for a couple of years we'd done the brand thing the brand was doing really well written a nice brand strategy And it's just in talking to customers, I realised that there was a bunch of people who didn't love O2. They didn't really care. There was just this big corporate thing that they never were going to engage with.
0: Which brings me on nicely to that stage of your career. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers and lower costs. So with that insight, that O2 perhaps wasn't going to be as love for a large chunk of people, tell me the process of of how GIFGAF began and and, and your role in it.
1: I was looking after brand strategy for O2 and I'd done that for a year and a half or so and met with lots and lots of customers, asked lots of questions. And there was, I realised, and the data validated this, there was a bunch of people, about 15 odd percent, who churned through through the networks, and they didn't care. They didn't want this kind of master servant relationship with the network. We call them digital natives now, but they probably were just, they were quite savvy. They either themselves or knew somebody who knew a lot about mobile phones and just were a bit more functional, didn't want the bells and whistles. And I observed people in shops not wanting to look at tariff tables. They didn't really understand them. They didn't know what a megabyte or gigabyte was. They didn't want a contract. They didn't want a guy in a shiny suit trying to them the latest handset. They wanted a fair, cheaper phone network without all the bells and whistles. So that was the kind of thing that was kicking around in my head. I then went to a conference in San Francisco, a Web 2.0 conference, where it was just summer of 2008. So it was the Obama campaign was up and running, lots of micro communities through the through the web. Twitter had just launched. Wikipedia had, had launched. So this idea of Web 2.0, of communities using the web to empower themselves through knowledge, information, sharing fundraising was that what the the i hate the word but the zeitgeist at the time so that was was what was going on i knew there was a problem or the potential opportunity with this market group and the the clever bit was linking those two things together going if we had a, a phone network different brand which was targeted at these guys using this behavior i.e member get member community referrals for acquisition really no marketing so social network marketing or influencer-led marketing and importantly no shops because these guys didn't want to go to shops no handsets because they had their own handsets and the customer service which probably was the brave bit was going to be run by the community so the geeks if you like who know the stuff anyway we were just going to encourage them help them to share their knowledge with the community about how to move your photos from phone x to phone y how to download music from your laptop to your phone and if we did all that, A, we'd have a phone service that these customers would love. And the clever bit, and again, it wasn't it was retrospectively clever, was you take all the costs out. So you take the marketing cost out, the retail cost out, the cost to serve, the customer service cost. all take that out. You've suddenly got a much more profitable, much more efficient phone network. So it was one of those, it was a great idea. I had a, I had a great boss or bosses at the time who, who kind of got it and were like, encouraged me to build it, encouraged me to go and do the business plan with, with some colleagues who were much smarter at that than I was. And, and it just came together at a piece of time in a moment in time where it made sense. It was a brave call on behalf of O2 to back it. I was very passionate about it. I, Funnily enough, I thought the brand should be called 2.0. I thought it was really clever. O2, reverse that, 2 with a little O, it was Web 2.0. And actually we ended up having way more fights about the name. So in the end, when I finally conceded, okay, we'll call it GIFGAF, <laughs>
0: Where did the name come from,
1: by the way? So the name Gift Gaff, everyone thought I named it after myself. It actually came from real word. One of the things I was really keen on was, as an ex-ad guy, as an ex-marketing guy, I wanted it to be a very simple brand. Like, you know, we had a simple brand value of mutuality. That was the essence. It still is the essence today. So everything had to be come from this concept of mutuality. Found the word Gift Gaff, I think, on page five or six of, of Google, which it's an ancient Scottish word. It actually means a mutual gift. So in the olden days you go and knock on someone's castle door with a chicken under your arm, go, can I have a bed for the night? Here's a chicken. And that was called a gift gaff. So it was one of those beautiful moments where it it was the brand. The whole idea of mutuality was that you do some work for the brand, we'll pay you in return. And everyone's, the community grows, whether it's recruitment of, of new customers or you answer customer service queries. So suddenly to have this Brilliant word that was authentic, real, uh, was great. It wasn't 2.0, so my bosses were happy, and it sounded a bit like Gav, so I was happy. It was a beautiful moment. Did you operate as a, a startup
0: with a, a different culture, perhaps, than O2?
1: Yeah, we were, I was really, really, really keen on that. I and mean, One of the things I found when I joined O2, I'd been agencies for 13, 14 years, had, had done well, had run my own agency, had had a really good career. And I was suddenly this guy in in Slough in this building with hundreds of thousands of people, well, thousands of people. And I just felt a bit out of place. I kind of felt, look, if we're going to do this, if we're going to redo the brand from the inside, albeit with some cannibalization, we need to build a different culture because people like me wouldn't, were scared. I was scared of going to work for O2 in Slough. So I was really, really, really passionate about that, which was separate buildings, separate office, separate team, different rules around hr different rules around everything and to most degrees we got that i mean we got a separate building uh, a little in beaconsfield an old an old rectory it started off with a team of 14 people again these little small things i think are really important was really hard to make happen i remember at the time various people noticed, just we've got some spare offices in they can go in there it's like no they can't because they walk into a building with a big o2 and we, they need to feel different and separate. We need to hire people from outside the industry. Full credit to Mike and the team, the operational guys. That that was really important. And I think we delivered on that.
0: Was there ever any concern that you were cannibalizing yourself at O2? Or?
1: There was always two camps of people with giftcath pre-launch. There were people that kind of got it and thought it was fantastic and were up for the challenge. And there were some people going, we're going to cannibalize ourselves. This is ridiculous. Why would we do it? And as the biggest network by definition, you will cannibalize yourself. And it was, again, full credit to, to the brave leaders, you know, Ronan and, and Tim at the time, who said, look, that's okay, because we're going to cannibalize ourselves for a more more profitable business, which is a, potentially, you know, could be a stickier business than our normal prepaid business, which is a high-churn business. And if we don't do it, someone else will. So why why wouldn't we do it? Fantastic customer insight coming now from two different groups of customers. We'll look, uh, we can actually... Make both businesses better, both brands, both brands better. So it was, it, it did cannibalise, um, but it, as I said, it cannibalised on a more profitable business. But, but again, that was, I think, the real bravery. You, we've now seen lots of our, lots of the competitors copy it, but copy it seven, eight, nine years later. We, we, in the very early days, Mike and I didn't ever want to tell anyone how many customers we'd got because we were worried that if Vodafone heard. They'd copy it straight away because it seemed too good to be true. But again, full credit to the the leaders at O2 who, who backed it.
0: So given that, in effect, you worked for a startup in GIFGAF and reflecting on your most recent position at Yopa, what do you think big brands can learn from disruptors for want of a better way of putting it?
1: I think, you, again, you have to go back to your customer, which is if you're going to disrupt an established marketplace, you have to do it for something that a customer can care about. They may not know they care about it now, so that part of the challenge is to make them care about it, but it has to be, in my opinion, to come from the customer. So spend time with your customers, understand what it is about the current situation they either love or hate, and they may not realise this. And then once you've got this model, you then need to explain it to them, and not all customers. That's back to segmentation. Who are the customers who most respond to this? And look, it's a cliche, but you need to find 10 customers that really care and love it, and don't care about the other 990 to start with. Start with a business idea that you can find a small bunch of people who get very, very passionate about it, and then and then build it from there. It's that classic thing when you're a small disruptor. You're not all things to all people. You need to be something very powerful for a small group of people. And then once those people love you, then you can scale it up. Then you can optimize it. Then you can test and learn. You can refine the, the actual proposition. But ha- having a good customer insight that people care about is I think the thing that often big brands forget is actually how brands actually grow.
0: And what can perhaps those at the infancy of their life learn from more traditional brands? It can't all be one way.
1: I think a lot of it is about time, Russell. I think time is this thing that often we forget about in marketing, which is, if you're a startup with limited cash resources, you're, you're not making any money, you've got a limited runway, time is your most precious commodity, really, because time equals is equals money. So in those instances, young brands, startups brands, tend to be in a rush, they're in a hurry, they want to get to the answer very quickly. And sometimes there isn't an answer. You know, marketing is not a binary thing. There's not a right answer or wrong answer. Something can't either be shit or great. There's stuff you put out, you learn, you optimize, you move forward and it does take time you know trying to disrupt businesses that have been around for 10 50 100 years takes time so there's a there's a time quotient for startups that i think is is really it's really hard to manage because you know that's the one thing they don't have and and sometimes you have to all agree around the table that we can launch something from a marketing proposition point of view but it won't be 100% right we can launch it in 3 weeks it'll be 60% right Three months, eighty-five percent right. Six months, hundred percent right. And then you've all got to be grown up around the table and go, "Well, we'll go for this option, knowing that it won't be fully correct, but we'll do the best we can do with the resources and information available." And that, I think, I think there's lots of businesses run out of time because they run out of money. And so that, and I don't that challenge of the right answer in the right time frame is 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 difficult. So on to Paddy Power, the enfant terrible of advertisers.
0: Uh, you joined not long after, perhaps it's Nadir, the Oscar Pistorius ad which offered punters betting on the outcome of his murder trial, money back if he walks. Did you think twice about joining a brand that was capable of such distasteful ads?
1: I did, I did. And I remember very clearly what my mum said when I first mentioned her and my wife. I, I joined because the reason I was asked to join was to help them redress some of those balances. There was a new CEO who, who had just literally been there three months and his first hire, turned out his only hire, was to hire me. And the brief t- to me was, we've got this brand that is off doing its own thing. Some people think it's gone a bit off-piste. And the danger is that people engage with it. They think it's really funny. They love it, but they'll go off and put a put a bet with Ladbrokes or Coral. And then there's a bunch of other people who hate it and find it offensive. And what you, your job is, Gav, is, is to bring the brand back into the commercial fold, if you like, make it more of a commercial lever for what we're doing. And if we still offend people, that's fine, but we need to be more potentially more defensible offending rather than just offending at will. So that was why I was hired, and that's why I joined. Yet despite your brief to perhaps soften the brand a little bit, there was a
0: 2015 ad ahead of the Ashes, which carried a picture of Rolf Harris in jail for child abuse at the time, and still now, next to the line, the only Aussie we don't want to get out.
1: Yeah, no, how fact, did that get made? Uh, look, well, at first it didn't get made. Uh, well, and that, okay, it, it was it, certainly mocked up. It was it mocked up, and it was then photographed, and then the photo got leaked. Uh, it never ran as an ad, and that—that that was a really—I mean, look, that these—we can debate this all day. I, I'd written a brand strategy with with the agency with Lucky Generals around relevant irreverence. That and that we all agreed that was what the brand was about. So the key there is the relevancy test. Is it relevant? And how we tested that was either we did it literally, and in that case we did actually test it literally, or you go, could could a sports fan down in the pub say this to his other sports fan, and would it be frowned upon, or would this is this a contextual conversation? In that instance, our view was that it was because it's a well written gag, it's a good line, and it, it's relevant to sport. It's got a it's it's relevant to cricket now. In the end, at the eleventh hour, I decided to pull it. I, I actually lost my nerve. I was new in the job. I didn't fancy being the guy who I, I just. It, it was. It was only. It was a poster we were going to drive around Lords on the first day of the Ashes, and I've kind of my risk appetite diminished. I, again, my boss was going, "Look, it, it passes the test. It's relevant. It's irreverent. Crack on." But I, I felt that it was too much. Interestingly, Unilad got hold of it. Unilad did a survey amongst the members of which proper target audience 94% thought that it was bang right for the brand and 6% didn't so it's a grey area I felt that was that was right initially and then wrong later on we built a massive pair of underpants you know the world's biggest pair of underpants that were 40 meters wide we were going to you know paddy pad pants we we were going to hang them on a washing line at the, on the field behind Cheltenham inoffensive but tongue-in-cheek and we got threatened with legal action for that by Cheltenham and and that was that was the thing about the Paddy Power job is it was people expected you to rock up and be offensive, and again what I was trying to do was drive the relevance. I thought that Ralph Harrison was on the borders. I thought the big pants thing was inoffensive, but people have different views. I had a really really great time at Paddy Power. I learned a lot actually. It's it's a very very commercially savvy business. The marketing we put out, you could see in real time the effect it would have on customers. So there was it was a whole thing was a test and learn environment. It was a trading exchange. And it, it was a great place to learn about the relationship between creativity and commerce, which is, like I said, the whole reason I came into this industry to start with. I suppose
0: it demonstrates in some ways the failings of data and research, because if data and research told you that the Rolf Harris thing might play, but perhaps instincts and insight of yourself tells you perhaps it's a little bit too far here.
1: You're totally correct. One can make data... Deliver on many questions that you ask it, and you can. Lots of CMOs and marketers are very good at massaging data to to prove the point they do or don't want to make. And you're right that something about instinct and intuition is, I think, what makes great marketers great marketeers The data was misleading. This, I think, it's a false dichotomy, Russell. This creativity versus data. I think it's got to be creativity and data. It's an and and situation. They can be bedfellows. And the CMOs, my job is to build a team where people can work from different disciplines together and manage expectations of my shareholders that it's not data or creativity, it's it's both. So what's next? I, I want to work for a brand that, that that wants to make a difference. I like brands that can take commoditized sectors and make them non-commoditized. So whether it's a new brand, a relaunch, a brand that's lost its way, just some brand that needs some help to really engage with its customers and, and whether that's another CMO role or in a, in a consultancy role or something they're in i'm available for brands that need to make a difference
0: looking forward what thing do you want to see change in marketing
1: there's this battle between efficiency and effectiveness that i I think is, is again is a misplaced battle so at the moment lots and lots of energy around efficiency can we get the right message to the right customer on the right screen at the right time of day we're in the right location in the right frame of mind with the right offer And that's where all the energy is. And it's fantastic. And I love working in marketing because it's a brilliant time to work. There's lots of data. There's lots of cool, interesting tech that helps you do that. Brilliant. There's what I call the last five centimeters, which is the journey from the screen, well, from the eye of the ear to your brain. So it's through the five centimeters from that, your organs into your skull, into your brain. And that's effectiveness. That's how do we get the brand to engage in a way that is emotionally rewarding to the customer. They'll remember it. They'll act on it. They'll care about it. That's all their friends about it. That bit, arguably as hard, has always been as hard as the first bit. And arguably right now is the bit that's been left behind. But as arguably the great brands do both. They are fantastically efficient getting that message to you. And the message is so engaging and rewarding and relevant that it jumps through that five centimeters, through your skull, into your brain, and then you act on it. So that, that for me, is my mission's too strong a word. I, I get quite passionate about that subject.
0: Well, it's a positive rallying call to finish on today. Thank you, Gav. And that's all we have time for. Thank you to my guest, Gav Thompson. Uh, you've been listening to Marketing Week Meet, sponsored by Salesforce and brought to you by something else. With me, Russell Parsons, and producer, Laura Hyde. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud and listen via marketingweek.com where you'll find all of our previous episodes including Professor Byron Sharp and Tom Goodwin. So until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets Sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers and lower costs.